Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Beyond the Album Cover, where we get an interview with those in the know inside the entertainment industry and give them their flowers while they're here to be celebrated. Right now with me, I have one half of the R&B group In Touch. They had hits such as Too Hype, Two Steps to the Right, All Night, Forever, done production work, songwriting work, and a lot of things that you may or may not know. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Beyond the Album Cover, free from In Touch. What's going on, bro? My G, what's up, Joe? It's popping. Not much, man. I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to do this interview. Well, you come highly recommended from my man, Emil. Shout so, out know. to Emil. So uh, you can catch Absolutely. his interview on the podcast, on YouTube, and wherever you get your podcast. So shout out to Emil. So let's go ahead and let's get it underway. So what was your musical influences like, and did you ever end up going to any of the early part jams back in the 70s when hip-hop was just forming? Oh, I was there when hip-hop got smacked on the ass. I was, I was there. You know, like one of my closest people who I consider a mentor is Raheem from Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. I've known him since I was maybe 10, 11. You know, um, I grew up in the Bronx, Bronx, New York, stand up. Um, and we had a park near us called Valley Park. The, the area I'm from is called Valley, Northeast Bronx. And um, our park was like the Madison Square Garden of Jams. Like everybody played there. Flash, um, Africa Bambada, um, Theodore, Furious Five, Fantastic Five, Funky Four Plus One More, Breakout. I mean, if you didn't play our part because we had a stage and lights in our park, so everybody played it. I mean, it usually ended up with, you know, somebody shooting. <laughs> but up until that point, it's, I'm never gonna miss those days. I was literally there, you know what I mean? And I knew a lot of these cats. So it was, uh, it was amazing. Big shout to Grand Wizard Theodore, Uncle Grandmaster Flash. These, you know, these cats that were my heroes that became friends and like family. Yeah, for those of you young enough to not know what the part jams was about, it was that the DJs, they would take their sound systems. Back then, you had to bring the whole set, turntables, speakers, a lot of cords, and a lot of wires, and then you the would power the streetlight. Yeah, yeah they, were, they, were, they were renting U-Hauls and showing up with sound systems. Because you got to realize the whole thing with hip-hop stems from reggae, you know? That's where Cool Herc came in, who I've also known since I was a kid. Big shout to Herc, Chuck Chill Out, all the Uptown Bronx cats. Um, yeah, they would, they would show up with trucks or milk trucks with speakers, man, that would line the whole stage. Like, I lived three, three blocks away from the park, and I could hear what beats they were playing clearly from my front door. Wow, so literally you had a party right outside your door, and people were taking those tapes from the park jams, circulating them from borough to borough. And if yes, you were really savvy, you made sure to put at your front of your tape, this tape is only for so-and-so. If I catch you with it, it's going to be a problem. Oh, yeah. Cats got stomped out over tapes. Like, be someone playing, play, be someplace playing the wrong tape that shouldn't have been. And, you know, in the clubs that were popping in, um, the T-Connection on Gun Hill White Plains Road in the Bronx was, like, a mecca of early hip-hop. Um, shoot, the Ecstasy Garage, Disco Fever. All these spots, and you know, I was way too young to be in a lot of them. But uh, you know, I got into business early, so I was able to finagle my way in. Right. It also helps to kind of know somebody that was running the door, owning the spot, Absolutely. or if you knew the DJ that could sneak you in through the mm -hmm. back. But they say, hey, you could come in, but if I catch you by that bar, you're out. 
And you also got to remember that um, a lot of them, a lot of these parties took care, took place in community centers, PAL leagues, um, stuff like that. So, you know, those you was able to get in, you know, no matter what the age, but you know, there was a culture which each different place you went that you had to be aware of. You had to be as street savvy as possible. Mm. Now, were the park jams different from borough to borough? Like Brooklyn park jams were different from Bronx park jams. Absolutely, park like, jams were different jams, from Staten Island. Yeah, the, the jams kind of started uptown first, and then you know gradually like uptown Harlem. You know, they had the Black Door Harlem world. They would throw jams in the park in Harlem. The Bronx was really famous for it. And in the '80s, the early '80s, I hung out in Brooklyn a lot. Like I used to hang out in Marcy projects. Like damn it, I would travel from the Bronx to hang out in Marcy projects every day. So, um, you know, I, it started happening out there. I, start, I saw it out there. Tompkin Projects, Sumner Projects, shout out to all my Brooklyn people. Um, yeah, you know, it, it drifted there before, you know, it was all, the whole city. And then a record called King Tim the Third came out. And we was like, oh, it's on a record. This was before Rapper's Delight. Mm, that was and, uh, personality dropped by Fat Bat Band, I believe. Absolutely. I'm impressed. Yeah, I, I know my stuff. And then also they originally <laughs> did I Found Lovin', which was covered by Jeff Red off his 1990 album, which was released on Uptown. And for those who don't know who Jeff Red is, he also was the one that brought Mary J. Blige to the late Andre Harrell. May he rest in peace. Yeah, actually he brought her to Kurt Woodley. And Kurt Woodley brought her to Andre. And Kurt Woodley, who I interviewed as well, so you could catch that interview mm -hmm. as well. Now, how did you and Eric hook up to form In Touch, or were y'all in groups prior to Lincoln to form In Touch? Well, well, a lot of people don't know, Eric played a, a very important part in early hip hop. Uh, I'm sure you heard of Grand Wizard DST, mm -hmm. Grand Mixer DST. He was the first hip hop act ever to play on the Grammys. He did the scratches on Herbie For Hancock's Rocket, Herbie Rocket. Hancock. Yeah, and you know, he was a um, he he was like way ahead of the curve. Like I still consider D a genius to this day. But um, Eric was one of his MCs. Eric's name used to be Godfather KC to the Affinity Four MCs. It was him, Shaheem, Jaheem, a couple other cats. And um, I knew of him from there. And I was a rapper in my, in my neighborhood. We ain't gonna go into my names and all that, <laughs> but, but you know, we was we 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 all came from hip hop, man. But I also had an older brother that played instruments, and um, he would force me not force me, but we shared rooms. So I would listen. I would hear all, all the old funkadelic records, brass construction, mandrill, and all that. And then I I started playing when I was like four or five, and um, and I just started imitating him. And before I knew it, I knew how to play. You know what I mean? So I had the balance of that funk band stuff and hip hop when I was growing up. You know, and, and my mother always took me and stuff. Yeah, and to think about at this time before New Jack Swing came about, you had R&B mm -hmm. and rap. Rap was underground because they used to day party on BLS and Kiss where you would only hear rap primarily on late Friday nights on the weekends with respectively DJ Red Alert, Chuck Chill Out, and the late Mr. Yeah, Magic. Now, yeah. what was now, that period next, like? Let's make sure we give let's make sure we give the awesome two their props too. Oh yes, special Teddy Ted. They were there early. Yes, give them their props as well, and also the world famous mm -hmm. Supreme Team as well. Absolutely. And mm -hmm. so, what was that period like before New Jack Swing came in, where you wanted to have a more younger, youthful sound in R and B, 
but a lot of the gatekeepers that be wasn't really trying to make it more hard, gritty, and still have that polished, smooth sound of late 70s, early 80s R&B. Well, it was kind of lucky. We were kind of lucky because, like, before we were in touch, knowing you, you probably noticed, before we were in touch, we were a group called Touch. And we had a really big dance house record called Without You. And we were babies. We was on 1920. This record came out, and two weeks later, we was playing the Paradise Garage. Now, I don't know if you know what the Paradise Garage oh, is. Oh, yes. Yeah, house yeah. legendary, and I believe Larry LeVan yeah. was the DJ at Paradise Garage. Absolutely. Larry LeVan broke our record. He's the, him, Timmy Regisford found us, got us the record deal. He mixed the record, but Larry LeVan broke it. And after he broke it in the garage, like the next week, we were kind of like stars, like taking it as a joke. We was doing like six shows in a weekend. Wow. And it was, it was a global, like it took us, we traveled a lot. We did so many shows. It was a gigantic record. Like if you Google without you now, there's YouTube. It means a lot to people. We didn't even realize how much it meant to people. Now, with and the then, um, after that, hmm? now with the without you record, did that get any airplay in Chicago? Since everybody knows house yes. is really big in Chicago, yes. we did. We were one of the New York house acts that got accepted. Like Marshall Jefferson is my people. CC Rogers is my people. You know what I mean? Ten City, all of them. We all gig. We used to gig together all the time. So, you know, Frankie Knuckles, we knew all them cats. You know, we were kind of younger than everybody. So we was like the babies of the bunch. You know, they used to call us like the little Jacksons of the Paradise Garage because we was young as the youngest people in there. But, you know, and we had the first house record that really crossed over mainstream. Like we got cats, you know, all the drug dealers was blasting our joints. You know what I mean? All the cats in the, in the hood was blasting our joints who wasn't even really in the house music but it kind of crossed over to mainstream. So we was one of the first people to bridge that gap. Right. And, and in that group, go ahead. Hold on, hold on. in that group, in case you don't know the history, was me, Eric McCain, Commissioner Gordon Williams, if you know who that is. He's amazing engineer producer, Lauren Hill, Santana, um, Josh Stone, Leela James, um, almost everything that comes out from the Marley family, he, he did all that stuff. He's like eight Grammys deep, and he started with us in that group as well. Wow, amazing! So, what was your take on the first time you heard Forcing Bees? They were taking old school fifties doo wop and mixing it in with the hip hop, and they were cutting their teeth performing on the Staten Island Ferry for customers, and while getting changed in the meantime. Yo, know, let me tell you. First of all, then they were they were the Forcing Cs. They wasn't the Forcing Bees yet. And they killed, they was killing everybody. Their show was crazy. I mean, Cold Crush, I should have mentioned him earlier, Grandmaster Cass, another mentor and friend. Um, you know, they were like, they were considered some of the top of the showmen. You know what I mean? But Force MDs, first of all, they came out of Staten Island. So everybody was like not taking them serious just because they were from Staten Island. And they was getting on stages and like really, they, were, they was killing them. You heard? They like really was breaking stages down. Their showmanship, they could sing, they could dance, they could rap. Um, what was their DJ's name? DJ DJ Doctor Shock. Doctor, Do yeah, Doctor Rock. Dr. That was Doctor Rock. Yeah, so they were killing things, man. They they was all. I knew they was gonna be gigantic. I remember seeing them open up for New Edition. It was killing New Edition back in the day. Mm. Killing them. Yeah, you know what I mean. It was um for some for some C's, then for some D's, an amazing story. And they also made one of my all-time favorite records, "Tender Love." 
which was produced and written by Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis, their first crossover pop record, and they were signed to Tommy Boy, a very important label within the history of hip hop, Monica Lynch, Tom Silverman. Now, yep. Frank Toro, he was head of their promotion, and he also works with us now, so that that very important. Mm -hmm. Now, we're staying in the mid-80s range, so 85, 86. We have a group of brothers. Okay, so 80, around 84, 85, 86, we have a group of bro three brothers and their cousins laying the groundwork for fusing hip-hop, R&B, and the Latin rhythms known as freestyle. So what was your take on Full Force and their work with Lisa Lisa, UTFO, Cheryl Pepsi Rally, so on and so forth? In their own production. I kind of I saw them perform before they got a record deal. And their show was already like on the level of like uh, um, bands that were hitting them. You know, like the Brass Constructions, the Crown Heights Affairs. They were already on that level before they had a deal. Um, I saw them perform at Bonds International one time. It was crazy. And I met them for the first time then. Um, and um, they were always ahead of the curve, man. Like, I actually ended up working with them a little bit. I had a girls group that I produced and wrote most of the stuff for on Atlantic Records at a point. And they came in and did a song or two, too. And, you know, we always knew each other, but that's when we really got cool. And um, they were always there. Like, they don't get the credit they deserve as producers alone. You know what yeah. I mean? They, they, they produced a lot of hit records, man. Yep. Check out their discography and check out my throwback interview with Bowlegged Lou. Now, also, at this same time, this young guy out of the St. Nick's Projects. He produced the show for Dougie Fresh, Slick Rick, Go See the Doctor for Kumo D, Rap's New Generation, I believe it was by Classical 2 was the name of the group. And then also he was in another group prior to Guy with former Guy member Timmy Gatlin called Kids at Work. So Kids your work. take on yes, Mr. Teddy Riley and the impact that he laid for New Jack Swing, which everybody else came after and added their own spin to it. Well, I mean, first of all, let's just, let's just call it what it is. Anybody who changes the face of music are icons. It hasn't been a lot. There's been, you know, there's been Teddy, Timberland, um, Pharrell and them, Dre, you know what I mean? Talking in that genre, you know what I mean? Each of these cats are icons because they literally changed. I mean, Catchman took what they did and did their own version of it and ran it through their filter and it turned into something else that grew. But these cats started things that didn't exist before them. You know what I mean? Shoot. I remember the first time I met Teddy. It was probably around 87, 88. When they were, they were working on the Guy album, probably, when I, when I first met him. Like, we, I knew people. We had mutual friends, but we had never met each other. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And um, he knew about Touch or Without You because, again, it, it crossed over to the hip-hop world, even though it was a, a, a dance house record. And um, and when we met, man, he was always the most humble, nice dude, man. And, you know, I can't say he he, he hasn't gotten his due because he hasn't gotten his due, and he deserves even more. The accolade should go. He's going to be here way after he, none of us are here anymore. Right. Um, Ted started something special. Right. Now, how did you guys end up getting your deal with Electra? Okay, so this is how this happened. So after we did Without You with Touch, you know, I got to backtrack a little bit. Is that Go okay? Ahead. Go ahead. Now, the whole way I got into the whole way I got into the music business, there was a group in 1981 called Unlimited Touch. 
and they had two gigantic records. I hear music in the street and searching to find one. I was 12, 13. I was running around in the streets wilding out. Something awful happened. And they went to my mother was like, let us take him. Let us take him on the road with us. He's going to be a roadie. Let's, let's get him out these streets. And um, my mother agreed to it. And that's how I got in the game. You know, if it wasn't for them. And I, with me being 13, 12, 13, 14, I got to be around Crown Heights Affair, Enchantment. Um, everything that was coming off of Prelude at the time. I knew the president of Prelude. When I was 12, 13, I could walk in any club in New York City and just walk in like a grown man free because everybody knew me from a limited touch. You know, I was working with them. And that's how I got my foot in the door and into the business. I went from Rodian and every advantage they gave me and I got my first rap deal when I was like 16, 17. The record ain't do nothing. And I'm not telling you the name of it because knowing you, you'll find it. And I don't want it found. <laughs> and... um. And that led to everything. From there, I met Eric and them through a mutual friend named Kent. And Touch started as like a band of seven people and dwindled down to us four. Without You came out, did an amazing job. I mean, it blew up. You know, we didn't know none of our business, so we didn't make no real money. But, you know, we, we was definitely like New York famous. Any place we went, we was famous, you know what I mean? And as 19, 20-year-old kids, you're enjoying it. And then when, when that label folded, Gordon left the group. He decided he didn't want to be a performer no more. Sean went his own way and me and Eric stuck together. And we just took like six months and wrote a bunch of songs in his house. Like he had a studio in his bedroom. And we would just work like every day, every day, just work for hours. And it was crazy because Albie Shaw lived right across the street from Eric. Wow. So within a two mile vicinity, you got to think about it. It was us, Heavy D, Puff, Christopher Williams. I've known Christopher Williams since kindergarten. Um, a bunch more. Jeff Red. Um, I'm forgetting so many people. My man, AD. There was so many of us that grew up. They were in Mount Vernon. I was in the Bronx. But the part of the Bronx I'm from is right next to Westchester. So we all came up together. We all knew each other. You know what I mean? So we would see each other. We would hear each other's stuff. And um, you mentioned Dougie Fresh. Me and him have been friends since high school. So, um, yeah, we did that. We did all these demos. And then I got a call from this cat who told me, yo, Vincent Davis is looking for you. I'm like, who's Vincent Davis? He was like, he owns Ventertainment. And that Keith Sweatick just came out. And, you know, when he dropped, it was like the world stopped. And he was like, he did drop that. I won her record with Keith Sweat. And then I found out Teddy had produced it as well. So, and he's looking for y'all. And at the same time, we were already talking to Timmy. We was doing the demos for Timmy because now Timmy was a big man over at MCA. So we had two kind of offers on the table. And um, Vincent was like, yo, when we sat down with him, he was like, well, what do y'all want? He heard the demo, said, what do y'all want? How much money do y'all want? Blah, 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 blah. We still didn't really know how to ask what we wanted. But um, he was willing to give us what we wanted. But at the same time, Timmy wanted us to sign the MCA and be part of that whole crew with all of them over there. Teddy, today, he wanted, he wanted to do a dish and he wanted us over there with them. But the thing that made the difference, they wanted to put us with Teddy in them. And we already wrote and produced ourselves. So we was like, nah, and Vincent was like, y'all could write and produce all your own material. And that's how we ended up on Vegetarian Electric. Wow. And that's definitely the big thing for any artist that really want to be self-contained is to be able to write, produce yourself, 
keep most of the money because as we know with the history of the music industry, normally contracts are not in the artist's favor and you got to know the business first before yeah. you get into the And game. we still didn't know the business. Don't, don't get it twisted. We learned, <laughs> but we didn't know it yet, but we knew we wanted creative control. That right. we knew. Wow. And the crazy thing that you mentioned with everybody that was growing up in that same vicinity is that later everybody would become pillars in the New Jack Swing movement. I mean, you're yeah. saying I'll be sure it was like a stone store away. You guys were probably hearing the demos of what him and Kyle was doing for In Effect Mode. Not a lot. We heard a little bit, but not a lot. Like when the album came out, we was like, oh, shit. Like, oh, because that album was flawless to me. In effect, mode was a flawless album to me. Like I was signed to Entertainment Electra, but I liked Al's album, but I like Keith's. Yeah, and you know, Keith's album, a game changer. Think about it. Eighty-seven. Like, like the whole movement. Yeah, started the whole movement. Like you said, mm -hmm. you know, when I wanna came out, it was mm -hmm. a hit. Cause I remember Teddy well, was. Go ahead. The intro to that twelve-inch version of I Want Her is one of the most iconic intros to any record ever to me. Facts, because I remember, yeah, because I remember Teddy was saying in a interview that he did for Red Bull Music Academy that he that Frankie Crocker, rest in peace, over at BLS mm -hmm. was playing. I want him for I believe Slam or the Jam it, and the audience mm -hmm. wasn't really feeling it, but he told the audience mm -hmm. like, "Hey, I like this record. I'm gonna keep blasting it," and that just goes to show you how far ahead of the curve Teddy was, oh. and that everybody had to catch up. Absolutely. Like everybody, when that record came out, every Teddy's name was on everybody in New York. Any place you went, Teddy's name was on their lips. You know what I mean? So, but yeah. So from there, we ended up on Electra. We did a bunch of demos and we started piecing the album together. And Vincent really gave us a lot of room while we was in the middle of doing the album. We changed our name from Touch to In Touch with an E. Uh, we made that up. Like, I think we were recording Too Hype that day. And he was like, yo, let's change it from touch, that's, you know, and we say, well, you know, we have a lot of people that follow touch, you know, so we didn't want to completely alienate them and we threw the end in front of it and that's kind of how that happened. Now, how did the concept of two height come about and whose idea was it to use the King Floyd Groove Me sample? Um, that was Eric, that was, that was Eric. Eric, you know, Eric, we both knew all the break beats back then, you know, cause we grew up as hip hop kids, so, too hype kind of kind of dictated itself, real real talk. Because I mean, we knew we didn't want to sound like everybody else in New Jack Swing. And like we both love groups like Slave and Loose Ends. And we wanted that sound to be included in our sound, but we wanted that 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 edge. We wanted, I mean, Teddy and them, that their shit was crazy, but we wanted, we wanted to be even harder. And and first, you know what record set off too hype for us? Just cooling by LeBert. Mm. It was like this, this is dope. This is dope. And it, and it, and it inspired us. And then it started morphing, and then we just got harder with it. And then I stole these eight and weights in it. And then it sounded like a rap record with singing over it. I mean, I didn't I didn't realize it till I sat on some panels and stuff in the past couple of years. But when I had producers like Large Professor or Keith Shockley from, you know, Bomb Squad fame, Public Enemy, and my, one of my favorite producers in life, Easy Mo B, telling me that, like, yo, y'all changed the game. Like, New Jack Swing was there, but no one went as hard as y'all went. When Too Hype came out, people didn't... I remember going to record stores, and people didn't know where to put us, in R&B or hip-hop or, or rap. 
because it was literally that hard, but we were singing. Right. You know, yeah. so Eric, Eric was hard, hugely responsible for that. And then, you know, we got together and, and I wrote, I wrote the lyrics and the melody and all that. Right. And the chorus has been sampled and deplorated many a times over the years by various artists, uh, Jason Weaver and the Stay With Me remix. I think Tony mm -hmm. Sunshine. And then I'm sure some high school. Yep. And I'm sure some high schools insert your graduating class here probably done remixed mm -hmm. it to do it at a homecoming or a pep rally yeah. or whatever. I mean, and Cameron, Cam Cameron used it. Um, yeah, a, a lot, a lot of people used it. Like Emil, I ain't going to talk about it too heavy, but Emil played something for me. And you know, Emil produces a lot of people, mm -hmm. but he played little snippets of stuff with me that they've been trying to get too hype right what we do it over for the past four years. But everybody who tries to use it can't get past the fact, they can't get past the put on my best. They can't get past that. That melody doesn't, you know, it's hard to get away from. So, but I told him, you know, we people now. So him and his people is my people. So we'll figure out how to make it rock. Okay. Now, with that record came out, when you guys did Apollo, now for mm -hmm. me, this goes to show you how big of a hit a song is when nobody at the Apollo is sitting down. Everybody is up or even rushing towards the front. Yeah, that well, you gotta understand, Too Hype was Harlem's national anthem. At that time, there was nothing on 98.7 Kiss that wasn't Teddy except us. We were it. We was the only thing, us and Tony, Tony, Tony. And you know, and we always kind of saw ourselves that we didn't actually, we, yes, we were part of the movement and the timing, but we never felt like we were New Jack Swing artists. And we always felt a little different, almost like the Misfits. We stood out. We were, we were the land of broken toys, like us and Tony, Tony, Tony. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. we, 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 we acknowledged what was going on and we was part of it, but we didn't sound exactly like everybody else. Yeah, you know I, I agree. Mean? Because Tony's, they came out of Oakland, you know, Oakland with that funk tradition, like Grand yeah. Central Station, Sly, and exactly. Family Stone, so on and so forth. Which are some of my biggest inspirations. You know what I mean? Tony, Tony, Tony is one of my biggest inspirations. You know, we did shows with them back in the day. And, you know, I used to love just watching them on stage. But, um, yeah, so we just knew we, and as we was mixing it, that's when it really happened. And I'm about to tell you a secret that nobody knows about Too Hype. Go ahead. Everybody thinks the drums on that is the drums, the sam a sample from um, Black and Proud, um, James Brown. <laughs> with your bad self. Now, the with your bad self, that is James Brown. We did sample that one line. But the drums is Pumpkin. Pumpkin was the first super hip-hop producer. He was first. He did all the records on Enjoy. Treacherous 3, Cool Mo D, Funky 4, Fantastic 5. He produced all of those. And he was, our, he was our drummer in our live band. Wow. And he came in the studio, and we would tell him what beat or play a beat for him, and he would replay it live, and then we'd loop that. That's how it felt so different. Now, when y'all were recording Too Hype and the All Night album, was it a home studio setup or did you guys go to a major studio to do the workings on that? No, nah, we lived we lived in the studio. Once we once we once we did the deal, we lived it used to be a studio in the middle of Times Square called um Unique Studios. Everybody recorded there. Chetty and them were there. We were there. Um everybody, new kids on the block, everybody was in in in, in unique. Everybody worked out of there at one point or another. And that's where we did all our recording. We would do all our we would do all our pre work at home, and we also it was a studio down in the Wall Street area called INS, and like Wu Tang did a bunch of their stuff there, 
Um, they did the first Keith Sweat album there. I mean, that was a pretty famous studio. We lived in there, like lived in there. Like he would block it out for us for months at a time. And we just go in there and he gave us free reign, you know? And like, when I wrote the lyrics to Too Hype, everything aside and the melody, I felt like it was the corniest shit in the world. <laughs> I really did. Can't believe that she said yes. Like I was almost told it to Eric like a joke. I called him. I was like, "Yo, listen to this." I sang it over the phone with the beat I had on cassette, and he was like, "What are you crazy? That's dope. Like that's 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 it right there." And that's the first song we recorded. And then um, two steps to the right. I, that's a true. That whole song is a true story, by the way. Oh wow! It was something I was going through with that one. Now, my standout cut on the All Night album is the beautiful ballad forever. How did that ballad come about? That's Eric. That's all. Like, I wrote the music and lyrics to Two, to two Steps to the Right. Eric wrote the music and lyrics to Forever. That was, that's what made us work so well, because we could both do either one. So I would give him my ideas. We produced the songs together. But he came up with Forever, and I came up with Two Steps to the Right. Right. Now, how are you guys able? I was it's crazy. Mm-hmm. So how are you able to balance, let's say we got our hard records here and we got our mm-hmm. ballads here and with album sequencing is so very important to where you can have a good album, but if it's not sequenced properly, it could throw the whole album off. I gotta give that one to Vincent Davis. Vincent Davis sequenced the album. We gave our suggestions, but he, he spent like a month sequencing that album. And we all knew that Too Hype was the first single. Now, that was obvious. And it, Too Hype was instantaneous. Like, they played it on the radio one week. Um, and it, we used to have this big thing called Greek Fest at Jones Beach, Long Island. And we went out there the week after it went out. And while we was out there, people was running up on us like, yo, that Too Hype record, blah, 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 blah. Because, of course, we shot the video before it came out. And we went to LA to shoot that and came back and it just all dropped at one time. Ralph McDaniels, I'm sure you know who that is. Um, I consider him a friend. I mean, he's one of the few people I consider a friend and one of the hosts of Video Music Box, Tuffy. He's, he's my brother for all accounts. You know what I mean? So, you know, they had a large thing to do with us and Red Alert was probably the first person to play it, him and Chuck Chill Out. And um, it took off like this. But what we didn't know that it was taken off all over the country like that. We had no idea, you know right. what I mean? And then we started touring and it was like, oh shit, they know the words, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, well now, were there some regions that you were surprised that the record exploded like Midwest or West Coast where they're like, oh, yeah, we're popping Midwest. over here? Yeah, it's like, and you know, you're not sure until you get there, by the way. It's not like the internet now where you know exactly you have straight analytics. We knew we was getting radio played because you could, you know, it had a lot to do with your charting on Billboard. So we knew that was happening, but we didn't know that it was happening. And this is the other thing. You have, once your album comes out, back then you had no idea what other songs off your album is popping. So if you put a set together, we had to change our set and add songs like on the spot in the city. Because like Crazy For You was a major hit in a lot of cities. We didn't know that. That's how it became the third single. We didn't know that until we got there. So we really had to add to it to make it pop. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And back then, you know, you just didn't know until you got there. Two yeah. steps to the right and forever. We knew that rocked everywhere. 
Yeah, and that was the beauty of regional records, like you stated, that um, certain records will pop in certain regions and mm -hmm. it's their song. Now, tell me about the making of the All Night record and how did Keith hop on it? Um, that was that was a label. I mean, Keith, we was around Keith a lot, you know, because we were signed to the lab, same label and managed by the same people. But um, he heard it and he liked it. It was like, you know, it actually felt a little bit like a Keith record if you think about it. You know, All Night was the complete opposite of um, Too Hype. That was a real R&B record. Um, had a strong slave influence. My, 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 my musical mentor, Sandy Davis, who used to be from the group Unlimited Touch, he played bass on so many hit records. Um, he just passed this, this past year from COVID as well. So, you know, God bless him. And he, he actually lived with me as a kid. So he was really family to me. He came and played bass on it for me. You know what I mean? Killed it. Everybody thought we had Mark from Slade playing bass when it was Sandy. Um, we just we wanted to show that you know there was a real musicality to us, right? So, and that's how All Night came up. Eric came up with the basic idea. I was like, that's hot. And then um, I remember I worked on some chords out with it. And then um, he had the hook, and I just started writing. He he had half of the first verse done, and I finished all the rest of it out. I wrote the rest of it, and it just it worked. I mean, a lot of people don't realize All Night was a bigger hit off that album than Too Hype was. All Night was a top 20 pop record. Wow. Am yeah. Amazing. And now, who are some of the ads that you guys went out on tour with? Wow. Who didn't we tour with? That's everybody the from Blue. Yeah, everybody from Blue Magic, Rob Bass, Lisa Lisa, Troop, um... Some of them, we did a Budweiser Superfest type gig. So, you know, everybody was on those, you know. And then, um, you know, we gig with a lot of people. Like, that's a hard question. Tony, Tony, Tony. Um, like, even groups like Expose and stuff like that. And then, you know, the whole new edition era. And, yeah, we, we yeah, pretty so much. Yeah, it was crazy with all the people that you toured with. And it seemed like back in those days, music was cross-pollinating in different ways. You know, you had Expose touring with you guys, and then mm -hmm. before cutting their teeth and exploding pop-wide, New Kids on the Block was doing urban spots. Yeah. And they were getting played on urban yeah, radio. Were. I met Donnie Wahlberg at a hood party. That's I met him at some hood party in New York. Like, you might have been in Harlem or something. And he just ran up on me like, yo, I love that record. We played at Madison Square Garden like the night before. And he was at the show and he ran up on me and was like, yo, you can really dance, bro. And, da -da 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 -da. and that's, how, that's how I met him. Mm -hmm. And for those of you that don't know, check out my interviews with uh, Danny Wood and Maurice Starr. And those interviews show you that they weren't a pop group at heart. They were an R&B group mm -hmm. that just so happened Absolutely. to go pop. A Absolutely. Absolutely. They were supposed to be the white, they were the Osmonds to what the Jackson 5 were. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? That's that's pretty much what they were. So, um, yeah, man, it, it was it was great times. Chris, we we talked with Chris, which was full really full circle because I can't really remember a part of my life that I didn't know Christopher Williams. Like I known him my entire life. You know what I mean? Went to the same elementary school, junior high school, and high schools. Wow. Like we we knew each other. He sing in the hallways when we we all went to Truman. Swiss Beats went to Truman. Um, you know. 
it's a, it's a collective community. Yeah, and what was your take when you first heard this group out of New Jersey today? Oh, him. Oh, the intro was. I used to love Teddy's intros, man. Do you want him or me? And I was like, yo, who's the cat that sounds like Baby Luther? You know what I mean? I was like, yo, that's crazy. And then when I met them, they, they was cool. It was cool as hell. You know what I mean? Like, I was so happy in the DJ Cassidy thing, which I'm sure we'll get to at some point. But in the DJ Cassidy thing, that they put Portrait right in front of us and Bub right behind us. Because that Portrait song is one of my favorite all-time records. Here, Here we, we go. go again. Which samples I Can't Help It by Michael Jackson. Now, you yes. mentioned the DJ Cassidy passed the mic volume three. Let's go ahead and let's go into it. How did you guys get involved with that? And it had a who's who of everybody from the New Jack Swing era on there, which was hot. Um, yo, um, Chill Will, Dougie Fresh's DJ, he hit me first. I was like, yo, did you see Pass the Mic one and two? I was like, no. So he sent me the links, I looked at them. And I was here in Nashville, I live in New York, but me and my business partner, little brother Ian, like we travel a lot because of our, our, our businesses. So I'm usually between New York, Miami, LA and Nashville, but Nashville is like my second home. So we were, we were here and he tracked me down. He was like, where are you? I'm like, I'm in Nashville. He was like, watch these and then call me back. I watched one and two, I was blown away. I was like, yo, this is crazy. He said, well, you're getting ready to do a new Jack Swing one and Cassidy wants y'all on it. I was like, word, okay. Let me reach out to Eric and see if he's down. I sent Eric the link, he saw it. And you know, just the, what it was for was amazing. You know, the essential workers and all that. So with those two things, we would say, yo, let's get it. And um, he told us how it worked. You know, they film you separately. Like they film you through Zoom, like we're doing right now. And um, we did it and when I went through, I was going through the comments yesterday and, and telling my business partner, my brother Ian, like, yo, the comments, how people, you know, you forget, you don't think about it. You don't think about it. You don't, looking back, don't do nothing but make you walk into shit. So I'm very much looking forward. I don't, I don't think back on it. And, um, but just seeing how it made people feel and how happy people were, like so many people called us by name. Yo, I can't believe In Touch was there, blah, blah, blah. It was a wonderful feeling, man. I was so happy and honored to be part of it. Yeah, it's definitely a big thing that DJ Cassidy did. Shout out to him, and it definitely lifted everybody's spirits, you know, with everything that's going on. You know, some may trying to figure out, hey, where I'm going to live, where I'm going to have my next meal come from, and to just have that little yeah. moment of escape is what all that matters. Like, this seeing people, this seeing people saying, like, yo, I started crying. And I felt that feeling. The first time I watched it, I, I felt emotional. Because, first of all, I knew most of the people performing on him and this all us all together and for a right cause it was dope man it was dope like we used to tour with troop a lot so seeing steve on there and killing it that, that was really dope to me now speaking of troop what was your take when they first exploded out on the scene with mama Cita and then the attitude album drops with spread my wings that's my attitude and everybody spread right my wings spread my wings is probably my one of my top three favorite songs it's right up there with tender love like, I love that song. I remember going through a horrible breakup and I, I listened to that song for like a month and a half straight. Like, if I got in somebody's car, whatever you was playing in your cassette, I popped it out and put in Troops tape and we just listened to Spread My Wings, whatever we was doing all day. Right. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, because um, um, I had a chance to interview Chucky Booker. 
And what Chucky told mm -hmm. me about Spread My Wings was that originally it came about because Turned Away was supposed to go to Truth. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. He I, told me that Turned Away. I mean, was, the songs are very similar in structure as well. Yeah, so, so, what yeah, so what happened was Turned Away was supposed to go to Truth. But when he played it for Sylvia mm -hmm. Rome, she told him, nope, this is going for you. And he tried to tell her, no, this is a Troop record. She wouldn't budge. Mm -hmm. Told Troop that, mm -hmm. hey, this record, Sylvia says, is going for me. And they were like, write mm -hmm. us a record similar. And boom, spread my wings. My wings, yeah. That makes sense. Great song. One of my favorite to this day. Yeah. The Clark Kent remix is what set it off proper. And check out my Absolutely. interview with Sybil, and you can hear how she felt when Clark Kent sampled Don't Make Me Over in the breakdown yeah. section of the video. I mean, that record's bananas. And Sybil's another friend. I've known Sybil for 30 years. I've known her from Without You Was Out. We would gig all the time together. So she's she's a, known her forever. She's a great person. But yeah, that, that was crazy. And Clark Kent is another one. I don't feel like he gets the accolades. Again, another friend for years. And he's put so many, I mean, there wouldn't have been no real Biggie if Clark didn't get involved. There wouldn't have been no real Jay-Z if Clark didn't push that button. I don't think he gets the accolades for that, but he's like amazing, dog. We did a record together for CeCe Rogers. He did a remix for a song called Thick Girls that I produced a role for CeCe, like in the, like 1991. And um, he did the remix and he, he's amazing. Mm, your take on New Edition and just their legacy period as a group and as individuals where all six can have solo success, come back as a group and have even more success. They're as important as the Temptations. They are our Temptations. They are, they are interwoven in American culture and as important icons to black music and black culture as the Temptations. And I'll, I'll argue down to anybody who says anything different. Yeah, enough said. New addition no needs to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They already got the star yeah. in the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Rock and Roll no, Hall of Fame is coming next. I mean, the Jackson 5 are there. They need to be there as well. And I'm like, you know, I feel like there are no mistakes. God's plan is God's plan. But I just think about if they would have did that tour after everybody did that first album. I, I say this all the time. After any heartbreak, and then when everybody dropped, you know, Bobby had the Don't Be Cruel, Johnny's album came out, Ralph's album came out, BBD's album came out. If they would have did a tour immediately, that would have been one of the biggest tours in American history. Yeah, they could have did Staten like Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, because looking back at that 1990 Video Music Awards performance where all of them did their individual sets and then yeah. finished with the New Edition medley, I was like, perfect mm -hmm. timing because BBD was hot, Bobby was hot, everybody was mm -hmm. white hot. Yeah. You know, and I, I think what I love most out of all of them, I mean, I, everybody else did what's expected, but no one, no one expected BBD to be BBD, you know, and I take pride in some BBD because I know for a fact, Too Hype inspired them. You can listen to Poison and listen to their album and you could tell, yo, we could do this. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So and I, and I take some pride in that. Yeah, and the Poison album, I believe, was produced by the Bomb Squad, and that's why it had that hard-hidden sound. Some of it, right? Yeah, some of it. But Poison was produced by Spider-Man and, and Dr. Freeze. Dr. Freeze. That that was originally Albie Shaw's record. Oh, yeah, because I remember Michael Bivens mentioning that in uh, Life After Special with TV One that that was supposed to go to Albie, but he Yo, wanted to go in a different direction. Moving around. That demo was moving around New York, though. Everybody heard that beat. 
it was like, yo, this is crazy. And it hit with them. Yeah, because when I hear misunderstanding, I hear inklings of poison in it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And Spider-Man, Dr. Freeze, they also did this ditty that was an R&B hit, but crossed over pop, top five single of 91, I Want to Sex You Up by Color Me Bad. Huge record. And, and they were nothing to mess with Bieber. No. Again, another production team who didn't get there for, to me, they were the, they were the, um, the early version of, uh, of Pharrell and Chad. You know what I mean? They, they had a sound that you knew it was them that they developed really early. And you know, it just, whatever reasons, it just wasn't able to follow all the way through to the end. But to me, they were the, the beginnings, the same kind, the same kind of energy, the same identity as what the Neptunes turned out to be. Mm. So you guys come off of the All Night album in 89, and you guys make the sophomore album. What was the process like going in knowing that, man, we gotta do a sophomore record that's just as good as All Night and not suffer the sophomore jinx? You know what, we never we never thought about it like that. We didn't. We knew we had to come, we, we knew we wanted to be hard. We wanted some joints to really be hard. Um, but it was also, you know, it was different. I just became a father when we was recording that. So, you know, we, now we wasn't complacent at all, but we were comfortable in our skin. And we added a third member to the group, which in retrospect, I don't think we should have done ever. We should have just kept in me and Eric. Like me and Eric been friends and cohorts and brothers and like, you know, group members together since 85, 86, 86. We never had one argument. Never. Never. Me and him had a balance that was just worked. You know what I mean? Like, I was always kind of the, even though he was the lead singer, I was kind of the showman. You know what I mean? So, and it worked out for us. You know what I mean? He was the cool, smooth. I was the energy. And it, and it really worked out for us. We had a good balance with each other. We should have never did nothing to interrupt that. You know, people always say, you know, it's hard to market two guy groups because let's face it, two hype and all night are bigger than in touch. There's a lot of people who know them songs, don't know who made them. You know, there's a lot of people who can sing too hype to you word for word. And if you ask them who made it, they're like, damn, I can't remember. Was it Teddy in them? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, so, you know, a lot of that was management. Some of it was the promotion that should have been better on just us, you know, and they really felt like marketing a duel was hard. So that's how come we added a third person. And I don't really want to get into any of that. Um, but, you know, it just, didn't, it just didn't work out. And after that, Eric was pretty much, Eric just wanted to write and produce really. And a lot of people, you do realize Eric wrote and produced Twisted for Keith. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Eric did a lot of production and I started producing too. Like I worked with the X Clan back then, nice and smooth. Uh, I've been working with MOP since damn near the beginning. Like their first family is my family. You know what I mean? I've been working with them either playing keyboards or working on something that I've been part of that whole crew since pretty much the beginning. Um, and we both just started writing and producing. But a lot of people don't know, I had a whole other group after In Touch that we worked two years on the album and spent a couple spent a couple of million dollars and the album never saw light of day. Oh man. I had a I had a group called Group Group Home Production, GHP. And it was me, the lead singer from Whistle, Jazz, and the lead singer from Pure Blend, who was the group who sung on all nice and smooth records. Will, who actually was a co-writer for No Diggity too. He um it was us three. And we did an album 
that would have came out probably would have changed the face of R&B more than two hyped it. But um, politics, frustrations, and it, it just never. I, I quit one day and I never looked back. Man, you mentioned Wilson. You mentioned Wilson. And I thought they were a dope group. They were signed to Select. They had Just Serious, Only Bugging. And Kid mm -hmm. Kango from UTFO wrote this beautiful ballad for him right next to me, which was covered by C-Note. And then they covered the Heat mm -hmm. Wave classic, Always and Forever. And then they had the new Jack mm -hmm. Swing cut, I Am, which was fire. I, I, I wrote and produced I Am. I don't know if you knew that. Hey, you tell me something I didn't know. Got you. Yeah, Finally you got, got me you. stumped, man. I mean, that record hit yeah. so hard, especially in that break when they sent, when you guys sampled Big Beat from Billy Squire. That was so dope. Yeah. Thank you. Um, who did the drums with me on that? Chill Will from the Get Fresh Crew. Oh, man. He did, he did the drums with me on that. But yeah, that um, I wrote and produced that song. Wow. Now... On that album, I did I Am, I did Show You, and I did a ballad on that album called Mr. I Love Your Daughter. Man. Now, a producer who I feel is very underrated, doesn't get enough credit, he could rhyme and produce his butt off, Redhead Kingpin. Oh, absolutely. Red was dope. Red, I haven't seen him in years. I'd like to see him. No, he was dope. He was, you know, he was from the whole Teddy crew and all that as well. Mm -hmm. But yeah, Red was dope. That His album was dope too. He, I don't think he got a, ever got a chance to show his full potential. Yeah. He was, he was amazing. Yeah, because I think on the Nice and Slow Ballet that he had, I think Trey Lorenz was singing backgrounds on that. Probably so. You know, like, and when you're in the tri-state area, man, even if you, you don't know somebody, you know them. You know what I mean? Mm. They know you. If you're in the game, they know you. You watching them, they watching you. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's kind of like you, you roll in the same circles because I was – interviewing Rashawn Langley from the group Shamari and he was saying mm -hmm. how you know rolled around in different circles and everybody knew of them and was like yo these guys out of Connecticut are so dope mm -hmm. it, it was them and it was another group out of Connecticut that should have lasted off but I can't remember their name I know my man June was was part of the group he's now one of the hosts on This Is 50 and um he was part of the group. I can't remember the name of the group, but they should have, they did a little bit, but they should have went all the way as well. Yeah, yeah. And it's definitely filled with groups that for some reasons or another never really popped off. Another one was Cold Premier. They were a five-man group out of Cincinnati, Ohio. They were the group that was singing and dancing in the high school dance scene in class at. And future choreographer wow. Shane Sparks was a member of that group. Mm -hmm. Okay. Your knowledge is impressive, my G. Hey, hey, man, I, I I make it do what it do, man. And, you know, I studied this stuff religiously as a kid growing up, watching Soul Train, Video Soul, memorizing Jets Top 20 well, singles and albums. And I'm very happy that I got you with the I Am ones. Yeah, 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 yeah. You'd have been like, hey, how did, how did you not know that? But I didn't really I didn't really know that one. So after the sophomore album, you go to do more behind-the-scenes work. And yeah, then... Yeah, writing, yeah. And then at this time, I want to talk about this three-man group. They came out of the camp with Eddie F., David Jam Hall, Neville Hodge, The Untouchables. They were doing work for Mary J. Blige, Shinehead, and then they released their mm -hmm. debut album in 93 off of Atlantic, Intro, in the late Kenny Green. May he rest in peace. Kenny was, Kenny was special, my dude. 
Kenny was special. You know His what I mean? His game, nasty. Vocally, um, nasty. Love, the debut me, album and the New Life album, I still bang those and there are no skips. No. Nah, no, nah, it's crazy. They, 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 they were special, you know. He, he got taken away, you know, way too soon. But he was special. I still run in. I still run into Jeff, and um, talk to Buddy now and then, to this day. Mm. You know what I mean? I just in touch did the um. Tom Joyner crew last year, the Tom Joyner crews, and that was pretty fun because you know there was a bunch of people who performed on it, a bunch of people we didn't get to see for a long time, so it, it was kind of fun. So it was like a big family yeah. reunion, you know, seeing everybody yeah. kind of catching up. Yeah, because it was like us, nice and smooth, which is family. Like, nice and smooth, you know, at one point we was getting ready to redo Too Hype and put nice and smooth on it with us. Um, it just, we just never followed it all the way through. Um, you know, they were on there, Mace was on there, Kirk Franklin, Fantasia, Chrisette Michelle, Janet Jackson, Maxwell. It, it, was, it was an amazing week. Man, it was anybody, it was everybody. I still have to go on one. Got to save up the ducats, have my all white, so I can look like I'm going to a Frankie Beverly and Maze concert. Now, absolutely. Now, Uncle Charlie was on too. Mm-hmm. Now, this guy out of this rap group doesn't get enough credit as a producer, as a writer, with his partner Corey Rooney. Prince Marky D. I mean, his work, their work with Mary J, his stuff with the Soul Convention, the Free album, the they Love did, Daddy album. His solo album, Free, was banging. Yes, sir. That album was crazy. That was that that that, that record was a stay hold in my house. Um, and great guys, man. Great guys. I know both Corey and Mark, and but I hung out more with Mark. And um, we used to have some good times. <laughs> we used to have some real good times. But um Good dude, man, and talented. Like, uh, I don't know why he even stopped producing because I thought he was amazing. Right. You know, but he's in Miami. I got to hit him. The ne- you know, the next time we in Miami, I got to hit him. He's on the, he does the morning show in Miami. Yeah, and, and I also thought, too, that the group that he produced, Menagerie, should have blown up more, too. Can we talk about that? Go Can ahead. Can we really talk about that? Best R&B album that the world will never hear. 18 and over, I'll make you climb. Best, best, yo, I mean, we used to crack jokes like they were the Puerto Rican Jodeci, but dog, it was this, yo, that album, Tony Perez, Mark, that whole crew that they, that put that together, that shit would have changed the world if that album would have really did what it was supposed to do. Yeah, because if you look at it, when Now I Realize came out, it was 93. Nobody wasn't really checking for, you know, the Latin movement as of yet. And that brings me in mind to another person that was signed to Uptown briefly, had a single out called Personality, never released the album, Nesto Velasquez. Nesto, another Who sounded like Christopher Williams. Yeah, he did. Matter of fact, him and Chris look a little alike too. Yeah, because I'm going to tell you this. I interviewed Nesto, and he told me that he originally was supposed to have been a member of Barrio Boys. I didn't know that. Yeah, but what happened was, I guess there was a falling out between him and Joe Jacket, and um, mm-hmm. he ended up getting signed to Uptown, releasing personality, and then the reason why the album never came out was because the single had so much buzz. You know, back in those mm-hmm. days, everybody took a break around fourth quarter and resumed at the top mm-hmm. of the year, and there was nobody mm-hmm. to push the record. 
and that's how it kind of fell through the cracks, you know, with Pam. A lot of great records fall through the cracks, man. A lot of great records, and it's sad. Yeah, which is is kind of why I like where the business is right now, because you can really you don't need them. Mm. You don't need them, which we'll talk about before we're over one of one of the endeavors that me and my business partner E are doing right now. Um, We'll get into that before we end. Oh yeah, and another group that should have blown up: four man group out of New Orleans signed to Atlantic, Real Seduction. I don't remember them. They had a record called Ain't Nothing Wrong. And when I interviewed um, Kevin Woolley, he told me that was produced by, I I believe it was Intro had had did it. Because when I was listening to the record, I was like, this sounds very much like Intro. But they were a four-man group out of New Orleans. Had an album called It's Real. They did commercials for the 10K soft drink, which is kind of like Gatorade back in the early 90s. They did a Mm -hmm. Levi's 501 commercial. Dope group. I definitely thought should have really blown up more. Now, you mentioned MOP, working with them. So what was that like, working with them? And when Annie Up exploded, later became a pop culture icon, you know, with Anna Kendrick from Pitch Perfect, doing the lyrics Mm -hmm. on Ellen, to when somebody did a clip of putting Burton Ernie with the lyrics of Annie Up, how to combine. That record won't die. die. It's never going to die. That record is never going to die. Mm, but how do you it's take... It's a brand new movie now. Oh, wow. So how do you take a group and records that's more street, but marinated to where it still have that pop reach? Because if we look at the movie Notorious, when uh, mm-hmm. Puff brought Biggie the M2 May record, he was saying, you can give me that street stuff on the B-side. I need a club and a radio record. And how is it like trying yeah. to manage getting that radio pop club record when your whole image mm-hmm. and the whole sound is very street, gutter, grimy, suited for mixtapes? Well, I think part of that is actually, that's due to the genius of Lays Elliott, their manager and DJ who've been there with them from, I mean, I first met Little Fame, Fame was like 14. And Billy, Billy was so, we're gonna say Billy was in college. And then he came home soon after and they did How About Some Hardcore, because Fame was a solo. They, they had, it was a compilation on Island called The Hill That's Real. And if you could get your hands on that, um, Fame got a solo joint on it. And um, Lays put that whole thing together, and me and Lays were a production team at one point. So um, that's how I really started working with MOP all the time, you know, playing keyboards on here or whatever needed to be done. And then um, last year, the year before, no, two years of record, I produced a record for them called American Hustle that uh, was on one of their last albums that came, that was kind of crazy. And there's another song I just produced for, for Billy's last solo album called This Thing of Ours that got a lot of critical acclaim with that. So, you know, Dope. we stay busy, bro. Stay on that grind. Now, what was your first thoughts when you heard Wu-Tang in the end of the 36 Chambers in the video for Protect Your Neck, which I didn't know until I watched the Soul Time documentary that when they took the video to Ralph McDaniels, it still mm-hmm. had the time code on it. And he was like, do you yeah. want to bring it back and properly edit it? And mm-hmm. they were like, nah, we want to keep it street just like this. Yeah. I mean, I actually saw them before I heard them because they used to record at INS Studios too. And again, I damn near lived in INS Studios because at that time I was doing the, the, the Groove Home album, which was also on Electra. that just never came out. But um, I always see them like, who are these wild kids coming in here? And they, they were funny to me. 
You know what I mean? We're past them when we're coming out their session, they're going in their session or whatever. And um, it was dope. And when it came out, I was just like, and then when they did the Parliament Funkadelic thing, you know, everybody branched off labels on different, um, everybody got deals on different labels and it's all working. Like that shit was genius, man. Mm-hmm. That shit was genius. It was straight out of the book of George Clinton. Mm-hmm, definitely that. And Wu-Tang's still a force to this day. Method Man, you can catch him on the power spinoff. RZA composing, doing this thing. Everybody's still movies. writing movies and Wu-Tang Clan mm-hmm. still ain't nothing to mess with. Now, what was your take on when the West Coast sound, the G-Funk era, started coming in, you know, with Dre, Snoop, Warren G, and it was definitely a different feel because the West Coast is very laid back and the beats for New York was very hard hitting. Yeah, but you know, the thing about it, Dre knew how to do both. You know, because you listen to them early NWA albums, those sound like New York beats. You know, he always mixed them very clean, but they sound like New York beats. And he was just telling LA stories over them. So as he morphed into his sound, he started snatching up all them George Clinton samples and stuff. I dug it. I thought it was dope. I mean, the chronic, that shit, when that came out, I must have listened to that album for like four months straight. But when that first Snoop album came out, I was like, yo, be killing the game. Right. And that's the one thing back then, too, that they would do was how they would set somebody up for their release because you knew Snoop mm-hmm. from the deep cover record being on G mm-hmm. thing, and that set you up for when Doggy Style came out the following year. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they did it perfectly. You know, things that happen, happen. But, you know, for a while there, they were, it was flawless victory, baby. Yeah, and I definitely want to give a big mention to the late producer, L.A. Dre. His name was listed on a lot of great West Coast records that came out during that period. Michelle A., The Chronic, mm-hmm. he was in the group As One, which was signed to Scotty Brothers. Dope group, who I thought should have flown up more. They had a record called um, Put Your Trust in Me, and uh, Martin Kimber, you know, he put out a solo record for a minute and they they were a very good group but I definitely want to give LA Dre you know his props and what he did let's on quick, those seminal let's albums. Quick too, I mean outside of Dre, Quick is probably my favorite West Coast producer. Oh yes. He DJ Quick definitely got to give give him a shout out for mm-hmm. that as well. And the funny thing about New York was that when EPMD first came out, I remember Eric Sermon saying in the interview that when You Got to Chill came out, a lot of people out West thought that they were from California because not nobody from the East were really using Zap samples like that. So yeah. they got a lot of love out West. Well, Sermon, Eric, Eric went in places other people wasn't going, which made him such a prolific producer. They were another group that we toured with. Them, Latifah. It was us, them, Latifah. I remember us doing like 10, 15 dates or something like that all together. And it, and it was dope. And to this day, DJ Scratch, who was their DJ, is probably one of the illest DJs who ever lived. Mm. Did you do any shows with Naughty? No, we didn't. We didn't do, I mean, I knew them. Um, you know, me and Tuffy, again, were like inseparable best friends. So I would be at everybody's shows and stuff. So I knew them. And when they came out, and when I realized they were going to stick to that melodic thing, I was like, yo, they're going to be so gigantic. And they, when I heard Hip Hop Hooray, they had a show New Year's Eve at Newark Symphony Hall. And me and Tuff went 
And that's the first time they played the video and the first time they performed Hip Hop Hooray. I was like, yo, that's none. These are one of their songs. I call it songs that's, that just made the world stop. Yeah, I had a yeah, I had a chance to go see them, I believe it was last year on the mixtape mm -hmm. tour with them, New Kids on the Block, Salt and Pepper. And it was just crazy to see how the New Kids fans were reacting to hip hop. But you got to think about it. Like I said, everybody was crossing over every which way and listening to yeah. everybody. Now, as a matter of fact, In Touch did some dates on the I Love the 90s tour um, last year as well. And that, they wasn't on it, but it was like Salt and Pepper, um, M MC, um, damn, what was his name? Young MC, um, Tone Low, Julio, Color Me Bad. It, it was a good time. Mm. It was a good time. We had fun. Yeah, for those of you that don't know, yeah, Naughty by Nature, they did the theme song for Soul Train from 93 to, I want to say, maybe 2000, 2001. So keep getting them checks. Now, I will definitely want to mm -hmm. give Hammer his props because Hammer was doing pop numbers. And this was at a time yeah. when rap was still not taken seriously. He was doing millions and millions and was opening the doors for rap to be where it is now to where it's acceptable to, to go pop and not be frowned upon. Let me tell you something. In Touch's very first show was supposed to be opening up for Hammer in Greenville, South Carolina, but the promoter, something happened. We didn't even know about the show, but I had family in Greenville and they're calling me like, yo, you're playing here with Hammer and da, 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 da. I met him later in LA, real cool dude. And I saw how, how he was a visionary. But you gotta remember, it's me from being from the Bronx, when I first, first of all, let me say that my business partner, my little brother, Ian, his father signed, he signed him to, to, to Capitol. His father's name is Wayne Edwards and he signed him. So it's funny how things reconnect like that. But I didn't take it serious, bro. I was like, yo, G could dance, but you know, I'm still a Bronx cat. So I was a little like, yeah, this ain't no Dre, this ain't no Snoop. Like homie can't rhyme to me. But when I saw his show, my dude, you, you had to respect him. Yeah, you, you had, had to. to. Yeah. That's what it, I loved about him. He made you respect him. Mm -hmm. And don't let the pants fool you. Hammer's from Oakland. Look at Red oh, Man's yeah. story on DJ Vlad when he tried I to know, play Hammer. Yeah, I saw it. Hammer didn't play. When I met him, we was at a club in L.A. called The World. Like, all of us was in there that night. Hammer, Heavy, all of us was in there. And um, me and him just started talking. And he was, he was telling me how much he liked Too Hype, you know, and how he thought it was so different. And uh, as Too Hype, I didn't realize at that point, Too Hype was really a really big record in Oakland. And um, I was telling him, like, his show, his presence was like superstar status. You know what I mean? He, he took the hip-hop show to another level, period. And you mentioned how that record popped in Oakland. I was thinking it would have been hot had they did a Too Hype remix and put Short Dog on it, a.k.a. Too Short, on the joint. I, I would have been down for that. I'm a Too Short fan. That homie swag is ridiculous. Like he, I mean, I know Puffin' them and Jay and them made swag mainstream, but to me, the the beginning of that was too short. Mm, too you know short, I mean? a legend, and this rapper right here, I felt had he not had his accident, would have been top five goat of all time. DOC. I know what you're saying. I, I still play that first album. No, no one can do it. That album, top to bottom. Very well layered. The skits. I mean, that album. To me, that was one of. To me, that was one of Dre's best albums produced. To me, mm. and you know, I love rappers where you can't tell where they're from when you hear them. 
That's how come I was such a game fan when he first came out. Because mm. I couldn't tell where he was from. You know, mm. until you listen to what he was saying, it was like, oh, he's talking about some real deep game culture shit here. Mm. And that's how I was like, okay, he's a West Coast cat, but I just love when you're so dope, you can't be defined by your region. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And what was your take on that. once the South started exploding with Jay, with everything that was coming out of Houston with Jay Prince and Rap a lot out of Memphis for three six eight ball MJG, then everything that came out of of Atlanta. Well, first of all, I'm a Scarface is in my top five. He's one of my top five favorite MCs ever. And then when I found out he was playing his own instruments and stuff on his records, I was like, oh, he's that dude. So I've been Billy Dan from MOPs who got me locked on Scarface. So he he's he's one of my top five. The Atlanta thing, I always I was always in the um outcast, the whole dun- dungeon dragon thing. When the trap thing started, I didn't know how to take it. You know what I mean? Now, I'm a little older. I didn't know how to take it, but I have a real love for trap now. Like, you know, I sell a whole lot of trap beats. You know what I mean? So I um I got a respect for it. I, once I understood what it was, I understood the geniuses in it because there are some geniuses in it. I don't mm. know if I would call them musical geniuses, but they're music, they're, they're geniuses of that culture. Yeah. I mean? yeah. My, my probably favorite solo rapper out of them all is probably T.I. Yeah, and speaking of which, he just dropped a new album on Friday called The Libra. Dope record. I haven't heard it yet. Dope, dope record. Dope record. There's one record that he got on there with Killer Mike that samples Alexander O'Neill if you were here tonight. Get out of here. Yeah. They use that? Yeah, you know yeah. How they, long I've been wanting to use that damn record? Yeah, yeah. They sample if you were here tonight. Dope record. And speaking of Alexander O'Neill, we cannot leave this interview and not talk about the impact of Jam and Lewis. Well, that, that goes even earlier than me than Jam and Lewis. Like, I was a Prince fanatic as a kid. Like, I was a Prince fanatic. I would play hooky and stay home to learn how to play Prince records, Prince records, Prince records. And then I actually doing, ended up working with him later. So it actually turned out dope through Dougie Fresh. And, um, you know, ain't nothing like meeting your idols. And actually, you know, I played guitar on one of his records and he kept my guitar track. Wow. How crazy is how, that? How was, how was that like? Because I've heard stories about people working with Prince and Prince, he's like one of those figures where I want to be on my A game, not be starstruck because he is an enigma. Was an enigma. Yeah. Still is an enigma. Yeah, I, 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 absolutely. You know, like I did, the first thing I worked on, I worked on Never Met Him. Yeah. Oh. You know what I mean? It was all through Dougie. Dougie put the, because him and Dougie were really close friends. Like, Dougie was actually part of the New Power Generation for a while. I don't know how many people know that. But he toured with Prince for, for, for maybe two years. So um, he put the whole thing together, and that's how I met him. And, you know, it just turned into something else. But, yo, that was amazing for me. Like, somebody that you grew up idolizing, and you play guitar and, on his joint, and he keeps it? He didn't go, oh, I'll just do that over. He kept it. You know what I mean? And, you know, he liked messing with the New York Cats. He said we had a bounce. You know what I mean? He, he had a bounce that he could probably play, but it's something that's instinctive in us. When you grow up in hip-hop, you know, uptown Harlem, Bronx, we got a little, we got a little ditty bop in us that you could hear in all our music. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. that, that was a life-changing experience for me. Right. One, one of my biggest things ever. Right. And speak, and speak, speaking of Diddy Bop, man, Diddy, the impact that he had on the game over at Uptown and then later Bad Boy. I mean, 
cannot be stated enough because when you heard a bad boy record, you knew exactly what it was going to sound like before the bars even kicked mm -hmm. in. Well, listen, man, Puff, another enigma. Um, I just saw an interview with him like five o'clock this morning that really impressed me. Like he's really taking a black nationalist stand right now that is very brave on him because it could really mess with his money. But I've never seen no one stand up like this and paying for it. Like he's paying to put the whole thing together. He's doing a thing called the Black Political Party. Check out his, his interview with Charlemagne when you get a chance on YouTube. I was very proud of him. Um, and, he's, and basically, just to give it a quick overview for you, he's like, I don't care if you're a Republican, I don't care if you're, if you're a Democrat, if you're independent, you're Black first. And none of them look out for us. So it's time for us to put an agenda together. Doesn't mean we don't love outside of us, but if we don't take care of us, who will? And I'm willing to put the money up to back it. Right. I was in. Right. And to see him go from there, I got to tell you the quick story how I met Puff. It's 1988 and at Jack the Rapper in Atlanta. First time in touch performed for an industry thing. We did Too Hype, whatever. Dougie was there. Hadn't seen Dougie in one minute. He runs up on me, yo, free, yo, what's good? Ba 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 ba. We talking, and he was like, yo, let me give you my new number, and let you know what hotel I'm staying at. I'm like, okay. He never moves his hands, so I'm like, what are you going to send it? You know, telekinetically or something? What, what, what are we doing? And this little skinny guy with a high top fade pops out, holding his clothes on his shoulder. Said, yo, here's Dougie's new number, and then and then and then and then. My name is Puffy. Nice to meet you. That's how I met Puff. He was Dougie's assistant, Dougie's dancer. So to see him go from that to this, and I, you know, I've been part of so many things that I never really worked for Puff, which I'm kind of glad that never happened. Because when we see each other, it's still all love, it's still all good, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. We never had nothing to get away with that. We got a very pure energy, and he's always the same dude whenever I run into him, which I really appreciate, because a lot of people get a little different, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And um, he... um. He, he, he always remained the same. And everything that man has, he worked his ass off of. I remember seeing him wash cars in front of the MCA building in the middle of 57th Street. Whatever he had to do to get what he wanted, he was going to do it. Yep. He was a hustler because I remember him telling the story of when he would commute back and forth from Howard in D.C. to Uptown, the intern. Mm -hmm. He told a story how Andre told him, I need this delivered to this spot. And instead of walking mm -hmm. up and back, he ran up and back. And yeah. that just showed that he, whatever he had to do to go get it, he was going to do it. I do have a quick Puff story, though. Go ahead. That, you know, the, the, the things that you people end up regretting. I don't think I regretted it. It wasn't meant to be. But I was producing Whistle. I was producing the, the, well, the album with I Am and all that at the time. Puff calls me. Actually, my mother told me. I get home, my mother call, tells me, some guy named Puffy called here like three times looking for you. I'm like, oh, okay, Puff. So I hit him back. And Puff was still living in Mount Vernon at that time. I was in the Bronx, so, you know, close proximity. Um, I hit him back. I'm like, yo, what's good? He was like, yo, I got this new singer, man. I need some of that too hype shit. I know you got it, man. Come on, I need you to work on this project. And I said, can't do it. So sorry. Busy producing with right now. That was the Mary J. Blige album. Was that the My Life or the What's the 411 album? What's the 411? Oh, wow. So you I could mean, have been on. Wow. What's the 411? That's the first one, yeah. Wow. So I said no. I said no. Did I ever tell you that story, yo? I said no. 
And um, yeah, I was wow. doing Whistle and I missed being on the 411 album. Crazy, crazy how, how that happened. And with Puff, he was able to take this four-man group from my home state of North Carolina, turned them from mm -hmm. gospel boys to the bad boys of R&B. Your take on Jodeci and then seeing Devontae's right in production game, knowing like, oh, he's no joke. No, I thought he was dope, but I could tell he was a Prince fan immediately too. A lot of his chord structures was a mixture between Prince and church. So I, upon hearing them, I was like, yo, Cat, homie's a big Prince fan. And then I read later on that he ran away to Minneapolis and tried to get a job at Paisley Park or something like that too. Mm -hmm. But um, first time I met them, we were all at the Father MC video shoot with Mary singing background. Was that the I'll, the I'll Do For You record? Yes, yes. That's the first time I met them. They were all there. And I forgot who introduced us, Puff or Tim Dog, one of them that worked for Uptown. Because again, we all knew each other. And even though like Ventertainment and Uptown was supposed to be like, you know, the nemesis, they was all my people. You know what I mean? They was all my people. I had a lot of love for them. Jeff Red, I consider Jeff Red the nicest guy ever in the music business. But yeah, that's after the first time I ever saw Jodeci and met them. And then later on, like a couple of months later, right before they came out, we was all at a party at Andre's house. And I got to talk to them and know them then. And I actually, you know, I got pretty cool with them a little later, especially like Dalvin. I would see Dalvin all the time out. You know what mm. I mean? Because we all went to the same parties. Mm. Yeah, knew the so, same girls. Mm. Every, everybody really knew everybody or knew some people that ran in the same circles. Man, so what was, man, I got to talk about Heavy D. Because Heavy D, man, his impact on music and look, everything in general, I mean, Heavy was a trendsetter. Heavy was that dude, man. And people used to compare me and Heavy because, you know, we were both big guys and we both could dance. So we, I would always, especially when we did shows together, it was always like, oh, dancing, who's going to dance better tonight? You know what I mean? But Hev had it, man. He had charisma. He was charming. He had the it factor. He was a master on the stage, you know. Another one we lost too soon, bro. Yeah. And shout to Chubby T Boy, who we definitely lost too soon. Yeah. And I was with D Wiz in Miami. What was that like a year, two years ago? We were down at Art Basel. And I was with Nice and Smooth, and we ran into G Wiz, and that was my first time seeing him in years. So it was dope. Wow, wow. that's crazy. RP Heavy D. And then your take on when Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince came out, and did you have an inkling then? knowing that Will would go on to have the massive career that he had and laid the blueprint of what we saw later LL Cool J and Queen Latif would do to go from artist to actor to a business and a brand. Hell no. I knew he was a smart kid. I knew he was really smart. Matter of fact, I met them, we did Showtime at the Apollo together. We were both on this, we was guest on the same show at Showtime at the Apollo. That's the first time I ever met them. And then I remember them coming to one of our shows in Toronto or something like that, yeah, like a, six months later. And that's how I met them. Will was real cool, real polite, real nice guy. They never hung out with him, you know. But I know that night on, at, at the Apollo, we bust their ass. <laughs> that's when they dropped, um, I think I could beat Mike Tyson. And um, we had two hype in Harlem. There was nobody that was going to win that fight. You know what I mean? Mm. That, was, that was Harlem's song. But, you know. I knew, I knew he was smart, 
and I knew that it was bigger than what it was at that point. But nah, I had no idea he was going to become one of the main actors of the, no. <laughs> happy that he did, you know, super happy for him and his family, but mm-mm, had no idea. Right. It's definitely- I, jazz, I know Jazz was probably the illest DJ I've ever seen. He was in the top three. Yes, yes, yes. New York and Philly put out DJs like nobody's business. I mean, Jazzy Jeff out of Philly, DJ Cash Money out of Philly, and Mm -hmm. we could go down the list of all the great DJs that came out of New York. Yeah, I mean, it was amazing DJs. All that whole culture, man, and you know, so many different styles of DJs too. You know, you had your flashes, you have your DJ scratches, you have your Clark Kent, you have your Kid Capris. Um, you have your chill, chill outs. You have these people, but and all of them like you have party DJs, you have skilled DJs. You know what I mean? DJ mm-hmm. Spinner was a beast. You know what I mean? It's like it's, it's so many. There's a party in New York called Soul in the Horn. It's probably the best party I've been to in the past twenty years. I do my birthday party there every year now, and they always have different DJs every week, along with Natasha Diggs, who's the main DJ, and she's incredible too. And you really, it's about a party. You know what I mean? And these DJs come and bring their A game to party. It's amazing. Yeah, definitely that. Now tell us a little bit about your business ventures and what you got going on right now. Wow. Well, shoot, we could do a whole nother show on that. <laughs> um, well, of course, my, first and foremost, I'm always a, a writer and producer. Always, you know. Think in the past three years, me, since me and my business partner connected, he actually got me involved in a bunch of other things that I wish I would have got into earlier because I would probably never have another financial worry in my life by now if I would have. Um, but um, we, we've done real estate. Uh, one of the reasons why we're here in Nashville. But what we're launching right now is three things in particular. One, hold on, let me stand up. Can y'all see this? The line is New York shit. And the... And the um, Website is newyorkship.com. We launched last year, phenomenal feedback, launched really well, and um, COVID hit. So, you know, there's a lot of things that's hanging out in docks in China that they're not allowing in the country. So that slowed us down with that. So, but we're going to relaunch 2021. It's going to be bigger and better. It's the hat, get you one. This is just one of the hoodies. Look at how well it's crafted, you know, something different. Um, the other thing that, that we're also doing is we have an internet, an internet TV service called crackvision.com. It's cable, it's, it's cable in your, um, it's not a broken fire stick, but it's actually a whole network that you can put in your fire stick. Crackvision.com spelt with a K. And we call it crackvision because we crack the code, the cable. And it's going to take over the streets like crackvision, quite honestly. Um, $29.99 a month, man, for over what, 1,500 channels, 1,800? 1,800 channels for $29.99 a month. And all you need is Wi-Fi, no cable. Uh, And the last thing, and it's really my baby that I'm really excited about, we started a thing called the Music Resource Network. Uh, Musicresourcenetwork.com, where we actually, it's a subscription service, where we actually take anyone around the world, you know, imagine if you can't get to somebody like you, which I need to talk to you about being on there actually, or somebody who has great records and don't, doesn't know how to get to a, a great A&R person, or doesn't know how to get to an executive, or doesn't know how to get to, to an to a entertainment lawyer. Our site bridges them together. And based on your subscription is the level of people you could get to. 
But, you know, it could be, there's a kid in Iowa, Utah, someplace making amazing records. And it is sitting, it's just sitting there because he doesn't know how to get to anybody. This, this is that conduit. This is that highway where we connect the up and coming with the best of the best. Um, they, they, these people still have their charges, but they do it at a much lower volume. I mean, much lower price because we supply volume to them. And, you know, you get to talk to these people. You could get, you could get, have, um, they could consult, you know, this is what you're doing right. This is what you're doing wrong. Everything from stylist, video production. If you need a website, we got webmasters, whatever you need, it's full major label services on a subscription basis for anybody in the world. All right, check I'm out all those better. services. And that brings me to my point of how the music industry has changed. And we saw that coming when, once Napster started to come in where nobody's going to Tower, Camelot, or insert your defunct music store here and pay almost 20 bucks for a record. Whereas I can mm -hmm. go online, download it for free, but the content is out there. But in terms of promotion and everything, you got to do a lot more to get it out because anybody with a Wi-Fi connection or a computer or a phone can put it out. And it's all about getting your streams, getting your likes, getting your impressions up. And it's pretty much the same game like it was back in the day in analog, but it's just gone digital. Yeah, I mean, that's the beauty of it. To me, I look at it like in the early 80s when I first got in the game. It was all independent labels in New York putting out these massive hit records. And the football field was level. And the football field is level again. If you know how to take the time and get the right professionals around you to help you put your thing together, you don't, you don't need a label. And it's all about ownership at this point. You know? mm, it's all about, I wish I knew back then what I knew now. Mm, that's what Prince was steady preacher. Hey, own your masters, own your stuff. And he, if you look at MC he Hammer. Was and the, he was the forefather of that whole movement. Mm -hmm. People were looking at him like he was crazy with the slave thing on his face and he ain't selling records. I know this for a fact. He put out an album called Crystal Ball. It was a four CD set. He made the deal personally with the record chains that, that, that um, carried it. It was a $40 set, four CDs. Y'all keep 10, send me 30. We in business together. He made money. He sold like 400,000 copies of that. Mm -hmm. You do the math. Yeah, yeah, he and made, made more money off of that than he did off the Purple Rain album, my G. Wow, and it made me think about you know what Hammer and Too Short was doing before they got their respective major label deals with Jive and yeah. Capital. They were popping the trunk, selling it. Master P popping out the trunk, selling it. Priority came knocking. He said, "I want eighty. You mm -hmm. keep twenty. He made. I'm about it out of pocket. So two million, two million tapes at ten dollars a pop." kept all Listen, of the money if you can't invest in yourself who the hell are you going to invest in that's as simple as i can put it own who you are own what you do and that's how it turns into wealth for your your kids your grandkids all that you yeah. know what i mean definitely that's that. real important definitely that and before we close got any shout you want to give and plug your social media uh, definitely want to give a shout out to Eric McCain, my brother for life. Um, give a shout out to my business partner, my little brother, Ian Kinyu. Um, my kids, um, it's a lot of them. <laughs> um, my kids, Corey, Sue, Danae, Kara, Soraya, and Che. Big shout out to all of y'all. Um, my family, man. And um, 
all the people that help us keep it together. My family here in Nashville, Michelle, who keeps my life right. Um, you know, that's what it is, man. If it ain't, I don't have friends no more. I, you either my family or your acquaintance. And that's kind of how I live my life at this point. So everybody who helps the cause, who supports my mother, who's my rock. My mother's absent to this, to this day. She's my rock. So, you know, these are the people that makes everything happen. I'm in such a happy place in my life. I feel like I'm 25 again. You know what I mean? Because I'm so excited about what's about to happen in life, man. Which is why I wanted to do this interview. And again, Emil was like, you got to do the interview. I know you may not want to do interviews, but you got to do it with this cat. So that's why I'm here. And, you know, talking to you all week has been a pleasure, my G. Yeah, and, and likewise, man, you know, who would have thought the little rural boy from North Carolina would be interviewing all these people and, you know, getting respect and just living out a dream, man. And I want to spread the word for you the way Neil did to me, with me and you, all my friends. I'm going to be like, yo, you need to interview with this dude, man. And other interviewers that I think y'all can help each other. You know, i got some friends that have some pretty big shows in New York that are up and coming. And y'all should know each other. It's important. You know, networking is everything, bro. Yeah, yeah. It's all about, to me, following the ace boogie philosophy. When you eating, everybody eating. Don't be hating. Put people on. Hey, I got something. You got something. Absolutely. You know, I'd rather have, I'd rather share something that's making money with 10 people to have 100% of something that ain't making shit. Correctamundo. And ladies and gentlemen, you can find this interview on wherever you get your major podcasts and on YouTube at youtube.com slash J85. IG. Go ahead. Free underscore. Um, yeah. Free underscore the dreamer. D-A dreamer. At free underscore D-A dreamer. Forgot to do a big shout. We didn't even talk about her, but she's like my sister. And I was there running her music department for seven years. Lizzie Grooman, the Grooman family. I'm sure you know who Lizzie Grooman is. You know, she's the queen of PR. Her father's probably the most powerful entertainment lawyer in the game. Alan Grooman did those. These are my family and a uh, big shout to them. All right, ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. Free from the group in touch, Mr. Jack of all trades. Thank you so very much for doing this interview with me, bro. This is all mine, man. God bless. Yes, sir.